Welcome back to Expanding Economics. Um, we're back on our trend of talking about economics like we always do. Last week, we did a bout where we were talking about housing and how to make housing more affordable, like that type of discussion transplanted in a Canadian context. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more about that and also provide an update as to how inflation is going whether or not we're at peak inflation, what central banks should do with respect to inflation and all that jazz. Um, I'm Andrew. And I'm Sophia. And today we're joined by a guest, uh, George Rigas. Could you introduce yourself, George? Well, thank you for having me guys uh, on the podcast. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so yeah, I'm George. Uh, I'm currently a BA student majoring in economics, uh, minoring in international development. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much me. I'm a very simple person. All right. Uh, George, do you think we're at peak inflation? I think generally speaking, I think an economist's best answer to any question usually is it depends. And I think that's an extremely useful answer right now. Uh, there's a lot of things that can go very well. And there's a lot of things that can go really wrong in the next couple of months. Um, but on a whole, I mean, you know, it'll depend if, if, you know, if central banks continue increasing interest rates um, somewhat at a drastic way, uh, it might cause a recession, which can then say, yeah, we have maybe peaked inflation. On the other hand, if central banks are expecting a recession and decide to not increase interest rates anytime soon, we might have higher levels of inflation. Um, you know, depending on how the war in, in Ukraine uh, follows suit as well, that might cause issues as well. Uh, we, we are currently in the summer months we don't have to pay much in, you know, in energy bills and all that. Wait for the winter months in Europe and 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 obviously here in Montreal. Uh, you know, winter's cold and we need to heat our homes that way in many parts of the world with with oil um, and with with fossil fuel and, and you know that that might cause a spike in 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 pricing as well. So I think it depends is a very very good answer to that question. Unfortunately, what do you think is the best case scenario and the worst case scenario with regards to inflation in the coming months? The worst case scenario would be to have similar levels of inflation, if not worse, with a recession, right? That's considering like a stagflation scenario. Um, it would be a situation where purchasing power would decrease absolutely, and uh, you know, on a on a nominal on a yeah on a nominal value as well. Um, the best situation would be for somehow prices to kind of find some sort of equilibrium. Right now, we don't find ourselves in a recession, and and you know things and everything is bliss and beautiful. I think we're gonna find ourselves somewhere closer to the to the recession stagflation components. Uh, I'm a big believer that central banks didn't act quick enough on combating inflation. Uh, I'm baffled by the idea how central banks didn't believe or didn't expect an excess liquidity in the markets right after the pandemic, uh, especially in countries like Canada and the United States, where, for example, unemployment didn't increase to like, you know, exorbitant levels. People were, you know, still making money, and that money could not have been spent. So the money must have been somewhere, and that, and therefore that had to be spent. It had to be spent later on, uh, willing and, and able to spend that money. So uh, yeah, that's kind of what I believe about what's going to happen. Yeah, um, I agree. I think that for a long time there was this kind of 
hopeful grasp on the idea of a soft yeah, landing. Yeah, the, the team transitory. And I think, yeah. unfortunately, that's just people yeah. in denial that they were about to lose a lot of money. Um, I don't think that, like, right, exactly. So, um, unfortunately, I, I would agree that we're leaning towards the recession side. And actually, I read today that I think Quebec recorded a 0.1% GDP um, contraction in the past month. And I think that's the second consecutive month where there's been contraction. So I don't really see there being any growth coming anyway in the near future. And by definition, that does mean recession. So I think, I, you know, I think, I think all that's valid, uh, you know, on the one hand, we, we do see that a recession is two quarters of, of economic contraction. Is that what people are kind of playing with the gray line here or the gray zone kind of saying, well, we might not have two quarters of, of contraction. We might only have one. I don't know. For a long time, I kind of wondered why did central banks not increase interest rates sooner than later? Um, and I'm kind of, and you know, we kind of mentioned the idea of housing a little bit earlier on, uh, you know, be, before we started recording this. Uh, and I and I think a, a good answer is probably that probably i think you know uh, canadians are super indebted and their debt has become very cheap for the last couple of years especially during the pandemic it's allowed people to buy homes of a million plus dollars with incomes that cannot sustain a mortgage of a million plus dollars at three four five percent uh, interest rates and i think the central bank kind of did anticipate that so in the end uh, I, you know, on the one hand, I'm very, I'm very harsh on, on central bankers in that sense, saying, why did they not incre increase interest rates earlier? On the other hand, I understand that there was kind of a cost to kind of weigh there. Is it, are we going to kind of hope that things go well, take a risk, and hopefully things kind of follow suit and allow the housing market to not collapse or be the reason why the housing market does collapse? So I think there's a lot of things that were mismanaged earlier before the pandemic, and that's what, that's why we're here today. Yeah, like, they were trapped between a rock and a hard place. It's just that they chose an even worse possibility for where to go. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that um, that's, I sympathize with that argument because yeah, they might've been trying to spare all these homeowners with really expensive mortgages, like the increase, but now because of this leg, now they have to front and load their rate hikes, which are going to effectively impact these people even more. Yeah. Like we, we are not like fully prepared for the consequences. So we sort of just like kick the barrel down the road. Yeah. And I think a lot of these effects are going to be um, felt not immediately. I think especially with rising interest rates, a lot of people who recently bought homes in this recent like upswing of the market have five-year fixed mortgages. So in five years, once their interest, if the interest rates haven't dropped down again, then we're really going to see a big impact. And then, so I think that's like a big problem with economic policy and monetary policy is like you make a change, but you don't realize what that change is, going to do, change is going to do and what the state of the economy is going to be once that change takes effect. Yeah. Just like how, like at the beginning, like there were a lot of people that were adamant about how, like in thinking that the federal stimulus spending in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic wasn't going to have a significant effect on inflation, which I, and it turned out that it did. Yeah. I didn't get that either. I don't, I don't understand. And, and again, I keep repeating myself because I'm just baffled by it. I don't understand why central bankers didn't see the, the situation where we'd end up with the excess liquidity. Like 
Like, I don't, I don't understand you. Like I said, if you look at the indicators, generally speaking, there was like, I think we went and don't quote me on these statistics, but these are kind of the averages here a little bit. Like we were at 4%, I think unemployment, maybe 5% before the uh, pandemic, we reached, I think a high of like 8% during March of 2020 and, and the, and the, you know, the later on month. And we've kind of, we've left that amount, but just think of that for a second on like a micro level, we've injected. I think it was $300 billion in the Canadian economy for that difference of 4%, right? And, and, and then, okay, that's fine. But on the same time, we shut down the economy completely. So for instance, if I like going out to restaurants, I could not go to a restaurant anymore. I could not even spend money on my, on my car because I could not go anywhere. Where would I go with that? You know, and even if I did, well, the gas was like, it was, I mean, I remember at one point, I think it was in April of 2020 when I finally did leave my house for the first time since the pandemic began. I think gas was like at 79 cents, like ridiculously low price prices. And what I'm trying to get to here is that that excess liquidity labor force that was working was still making money could not have, and just could not spend it. Not because they could not in the sense that they, they couldn't afford it. They were not allowed to spend the money for a good amount of it. So a lot of money was left into savings accounts. A lot of money was put away, was stashed, was stashed, was stashed. So when things suddenly opened up, even though it was gradual on a you know human level, on an economic level, it was still sudden. Within a couple of months, we ended up going from closed restaurants to full capacity restaurants. Consumers were able all of a sudden to spend money that they had in their pockets in the first place. So that caused the excess inflation. I saw this from June of 2020, saying this is going to happen sometime soon. Things are going to open up. You know, we're going to have to do something about this. Uh, and no one reacted. No one seemed to have that same reaction at the time. Everyone was like, oh, no, it'll be fine. It's going to, you know, let the economy grow and it's going to, you know, the economy is going to roar back. And no one kind of discussed inflation. At least no one seriously seemed to have discussed inflation. And then when it was, it was considered transitory. And then now we're in the situation where we have like this, this, this whole you know, inflation situation. So I don't, I, you know, it baffled me that central bankers didn't see this coming. Yeah. And I think that you kind of set a point that I thought was really interesting. Maybe one reason why central bankers didn't react the way they did is because we are so focused on this kind of like neoclassical economic goal where GDP is God and economic growth is like the be all end all. So you start to see this, like what may be the first signs of inflation after a time of like a lot of fear surrounding what's going to happen to economic growth and decades of low economic growth. And so people, they didn't react because that those indicators were mistaken for a positive thing. It, it was kind of wishful, hopeful thinking based around this, like we are succeeding as, as bankers, as governments, as politicians were succeeding in growing the economy. I agree that there's this obsession with GDP. That's something that could have obviously caused it. And I mean, yes, GDP could be a great indicator in many cases to kind of show a global view of how the economy is doing. Um, we've, we, you know, economists have fetishized around it for many, many years. It's like with a lot of numbers, essentially, right? I always find that amazing, by the way, on, on more of a, of a personal side note, I, I, I find it amazing how economists like to take numbers and and use like the, as like the you know god known information about everything and, and when they were trying to rationalize human being you know human interaction all that but anyways that's besides they have another discussion about that but but i agree with you on that like yeah there's this thing about oh look things are going well or this idea of like oh we're gonna let you know in, in, it's fine inflation's there but look at the economy it's growing again I don't know. I don't, I, I, you know, there's maybe there are some, maybe the things we cannot understand right now, you know, another good example of, of as to why maybe the central bank could have allowed this deliberately was, you know, like I said, uh, Canadian, the Canadian government 
and Canadians as well as a whole are hugely indebted more than ever, I believe, you know, um, when inflation happens, that eats away the debt, right? If you're, if you owed a billion dollars last year, and all of a sudden that billion dollars is 10% less valuable, well, you only, you only own a hundred million, right? That's, that's a quite a big of difference, right? Um, that's kind of a situation where you can also say, okay, well, listen, that, that, that might be the reason why, uh, again, like I said, also, if, if, if the Canadian, uh, population is extreme, you know, high, has low, uh, credit costs, put it, yeah, like low interest rates and everything. And they're hugely indebted as well. Well, by leaving the interest rates low, you're allowing for that situation to continue going on. If real interest rate, for example, is at 5%, this is, and this is just like general concepts here. If, if, if interest rates are 5%, let's say, and before it was at two, but inflation is at 10%, your real interest rate is still minus 5%. Your debt is still worthless in the end, right? I think you're, you're largely right about how a lot of the time central banks should have raised interest rates earlier and should have seen a lot of this coming earlier. I think that's true when it comes to things like federal stimulus spending. But if I were to like get, cut them a little bit of slack, I would say that there are some things that they couldn't have foreseen, like Russia deciding to invade Ukraine or like China shutting down their most populated country. I mean, China shutting down their most populated city, which is like within one of the top 10 most populated cities in the entire world. Um, I, th I do think that there are some... There are supply shocks, right? Um, yeah, I think there are some supply shocks that like were hard to foresee. And like if those supply shocks didn't happen, then the situation would still be bad, but not as bad as it is right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's obvious. Like we mentioned it before a little bit. Uh, there was things that were unforeseen that happened. Uh, but going back to what I said earlier, I think the central bank kind of expected things to kind of go all well. You know, there was like, oh, the, the pandemic's done and that's the worst that could happen. And let's pray let's 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 cross our thumbs and and i mean let's cross our fingers that that's the worst it's gonna get um yeah i i already i wouldn't know we'd have to ask the central bank governors of the world like what did, what were you doing by not in increasing interest rates sooner on you know i mean the european market for example is another great example another mess in itself obviously right they're in they're in they're increasing uh, interest rates i think they increased it the first time uh last week for the first time, that, but that's it's, its own situation, right? I mean, the, the European, a lot of European countries are hugely indebted. There's like stagnant growth for the last 10 odd years, right? Since the economic crisis. Um, there's a lot of money being injected in Europe as well. There's like trillions of dollars that are gonna be in, uh, stimulated into the economy. But that itself as well is a good thing, right? That's like, that's another example as to how things could have been differently done. In Europe, for example, where I think it's like a trillion or some or 2 trillion euros are gonna be uh, you know, injected into the economy to stimulate growth. Um, I'll give you the Greek example because I'm of Greek descent. I think it's 86 billion euros that are going to be injected into the Greek economy within the next five years. That's an immense amount of money for a GDP of Greece's amount, which I think around 200 billion euros. It's a huge amount of money. But that money is expected to be invested in technology, is expected to be invested in specific key industries to kind of allow for economic growth and also for a more efficient economy. In Canada, on the other hand, we spent $200 billion and then went into people's either savings, okay? For example, students who took the $2,000 a, uh, a month and saved it or bought Gucci bags with it, or the people that actually did need the money and they spent it right away, right? These are the two examples where our money was, was, was spent. There's no plans from what I understand, and I might be wrong about this, correct if I'm wrong, there's no plans to have a stimulus that's going to boost economic efficiency anytime soon in Canada. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the CERB was a bad thing and, 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 you know, and on an economic perspective, however, nothing was done after that. 
No one expected to how to absorb that money. No one realized how that money was going to be um, properly allocated. I mean, on 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 a surface level, Serb did its job. It was supposed to prop up the economy, and it did that. Two hundred billion euro, two hundred billion dollars, all of a sudden injected to the economy. It propped it up by a couple of percentiles there, so it didn't fall into a huge recession. It allowed a lot of a lot of families some nice breathing room. Okay, but by doing that thing on a, such a uniform level, you. I mean, the, the government missed out on a lot of disparities that now is causing a lot of harm to the Canadian economy in the end. I think it comes out and, and honestly it comes down to just supply and demand, right? That's that's the, the, the bottom line of this all is that supply at the moment cannot catch up to demand. Um, and on the other hand, to the, the basic idea of demand is based on the wants and the, uh, the you know, willingness and, and, uh, and a building, uh, well, the, the ability and the wants of our consumers. Our consumers in Canada are at the moment uh, able and willing to spend their money, and that's why the prices are going up. You know, there's no there's no other explanation to it. It's not there's not, there's not there aren't these uh, you know these uh, evil companies trying to increase prices for the fun of it. Oh, the like the whole like idea that somehow like corporate greed is responsible for inflation. I I always think of it this way: corporations are always greedy. There is no way to change that. So like the inflation is not like because of corporate greed but because of other factors Cor- like corporations do not become greedier like corporations always stay at the same level of greed so like the actual causes of inflation are by things that actually go up or down like demand shocks or supply shock it isn't perfect i'm gonna agree with you on that okay like it's not you know i'll give you that it's not you know again i'm seven dollar coffee starbucks if starbucks has a huge somewhat monopoly on on specific types of coffees i mean yeah okay that's that exists and that and that's our that's us you know that's our governments and our regulators to blame for that as well i give you that but you know um if the price of you know if the price of oranges went up in the last couple of months seven eight nine percent monthly you can't blame apple on that right you you um, the company, not the fruit. I believe there's a disparity between what people believe their, you know, their their reservation price is and their actual reservation price is. Apples, for example, let's go back to the fruits and the market on that. If you buy apples, uh, at I don't know what apples go for. If if apples are ninety nine cents a pop, I don't know, a, let's say a, a pound three months ago, and now it's two dollars and thirty nine cents a, a pound. You're like, oh my god, it's so expensive. That's terrible. And you still put it in your basket. I mean. Okay, it's nice to say it. But it's hard when the price of everything is going up and you need, like, you can maybe substitute apples for oranges, but if the prices of apples and oranges are going up, okay, substitute for bananas, but the price of bananas is also going up. But, you know, I think a good way of looking at at macroeconomic concepts like this and and these these things is to kind of look at it a little bit as different walls opening and, or yeah, kind of walls kind of, you know, kind of things where you kind of get squeezed into it, right? On the one hand, when prices started to go up, on the supplier level because gas went up or whatever. Let's take the orange example. Let's say the price of energy went up. So the producer of oranges starts to get that squeeze from the back of him. Say, okay, something, some, one of my inputs are becoming quite expensive. I'm going to see what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to, to, to cushion that increase because I don't believe the, cons- I don't believe that's a good thing. I do not believe the consumer can 
will, will tolerate an increase on their prices automatically. I'm going to get squeezed, squeezed, squeezed until I say I have no choice, but I need to pass on the, 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 the cost for the consumer. This is where the, and I, th- and again, this is where I think I'm not, a, I'm not an expert in this whatsoever. I barely have my BA yet. Okay. Forget about the expert stuff yet, but this is what I'm kind of understanding here. Once the consumer start, once the supplier starts passing on some of the costs to the consumer, this is where we're testing the consumer now. We went 99 cents to $1.05. Oh, okay. I can still buy the, the apples, uh, the, the oranges. And there's no reaction. Okay. $1.10. Not much of a reaction. $1.15. $1.20, right? And, and that's where this, you can see now. I, I don't, you know, we in the beginning of, of inflation, we had a lot of grocery stores saying, we're going to try to absorb the cost. And they did. To, to, a, to, to a decent extent, a lot of these different companies tried to absorb some of the cost. And once they started piling on to the consumer a little bit because I can't do more than this, it's really affecting me kind of thing. Or this is my reservation point of where I can do this, but I still got to produce. I'm going to add on some of it to them. This is where it's starting. And then on the consumer level, the same thing's going to happen. I'm going to substitute until I can no longer substitute. And when I stop substituting, that's when we have a recession. If I'd say I can no longer, like you give the perfect example, I can substitute my orange for an apple, then an apple for banana, banana for strawberries, et cetera, et cetera. But if, if they're all $100 a pound, I really hope that never happens. But if we end up to $100 a pound, I'm not buying any more fruit. And that's where recession, and that's where we have the recession beginning. It doesn't happen. I don't, you know, I think a lot of economic concepts are misunderstood because they think, because people think it just, it's like a sudden thing, right? Oh my God, recession. I'm stopping to buy everything. I'm not spending any more money now. We're in a recession. That's how it happens. No, it's it's these passing on of of whatever it is of these economic cons these economic you know words put it that way onto one thing to the next of, of this economic you know uh, machine, and eventually it grinds to a halt because everyone's pushing their heels in for something. In in the case of inflation, that's exactly what's happening. the The central bank's going to do its job in increasing interest rates because it's needed to be done. Uh, and that's going to help ease the recession. It's going to help ease the situation. I don't think it's going to help not us being in a recession anytime soon. So I think the next question to ask ourselves in the next couple of months, because I believe I'm a, I'm a strong believer that a recession will be coming. I don't believe it's not going to happen because I just explained the situation passing on prices. Like you said, there's certain costs where people are having this discussion and saying there's too much. I cannot afford to keep substituting. I'm going to have to just cut. If that happens, that we have a recession right there, automatic recession. And then it'll be this. And then I'm wondering to see. Are central banks going to decide to draw to stop increasing interest rates right away? Are they going to decide to drop in interest rates right away? Are they going to decide to continue increasing interest rates? This is, I think, the key thing to ask ourselves. And depending on how they react, it's going to affect the recession in the long run as well, depending how quick they act too. Mortgages continue to rise in the next couple of months. It's going to accentuate a recession, 110%. We cannot afford it. Some economists are talking about 30% decrease in, in housing prices in Canada. That's massive. That's a huge problem there. And that won't be all because of, you know, um, it won't be all because of supply and demand. There was obviously the interest rates are going to affect that and people are going to have to make decisions from there. But you get what I'm saying about, about that that movement of, 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 of shock. It's, I don't think it's just... Yeah, it's a chain. It's a chain link effect or domino effect that eventually leads to the big bang. But it's that big bang doesn't happen on its own. But it's not necessarily visible in the beginning because it's it impacts every section independently until it doesn't. Yeah, we're looking from far. We're looking at the economy, saying, "Oh, this looks weird," or "Oh, this looks good." Right before with the GDP thing, you said people are, you know, they they admire GDP growth and they were like, "Oh my god, it's great. Things are doing so well." But you're looking at one thing out of you're looking at an, at a huge map, right? And and 
And that's it. And that's maybe that's maybe one of the difficulties of economics. We cannot look at everything at the same time because then there's no an analysis to do. And we cannot look at, at only some things in the economy as it because we, we also get scolded for that. You're too, you know, you're too uh, you're too optimistic or you're too rational in the concepts of it all. What about this specific thing? It's very hard to rationalize humans. And I don't I I it's yeah, it's pretty hard. So um, I have a question for both of you guys. If you were a central banker right now and there's no right answer, but what, what would you do? Would you keep hiking rates or would you let it chill for a little bit and see what happens? Or would you call it a day? No more rate hikes. It's sad, but I think at this point, there's nothing we can do except hike rates. Well, obviously you can't just like do it at, at everything at once, but just like incrementally and then just look at the empirical change with respect to inflation, just adjust here and there. Um, I don't know what I would do today. Depends on who I'm looking to favor. If I'm looking to favor new home buyers, continue increasing interest rates for the moment. Prices are going to go down by 30% and I'm going to buy myself a nice mansion for for a 30% discount, right? If I'm looking to save my baby boomers investments and their homes, maybe let the recession happen. Let let inflation continue to grind on and we'll figure it out. It'll depend on that. But you see, and, you know, maybe I, if, if you don't mind, can I ask the question what I would have done before all of this? I would have increased interest rates if, it's, if it hasn't been obvious yet <laughs> a long time ago. Right. And and slowly and see how the economy adjusts to it. Um, and even if I were to stop economic uh, growth because of that, because it would it would stagnate economic growth. You wouldn't have the six, 7% in growth that we had in the last couple of quarters after the economy. It wouldn't be that. We would have a much slower you know, uh, return to growth. I don't have an election to win next year right? As, as a central banker. My job is to be independent of that. And it's unfortunate what, from what it looks like that central bankers didn't take that into consideration in many cases. It was just kind of like, well, you know, we got to please people here. It's a matter of like how important the, like the, whatever political election, like that's happening soon. Like how important is that to the country as a whole? And like how much leeway do you have when it comes to taking drastic economic measures? Yeah, I'm not sure what I would do now either. I I think I would, I don't think uh, too much without seeing the results or an indicator of the results was ever too good. I would slow down. How accurate, like how useful do you think core inflation is as a metric for understanding inflation? Core inflation is inflation minus energy and food, correct? Yeah, like don't include food or gas in like, and then that's the inflate. Like I think right now core inflation is substantially less than regular inflation because like gas prices have played an extremely large role in our current bout of inflation. My first instinct is to say that it lags because as um, George described, it's a chain effect and companies are going to pass on the price once they can't do it anymore. And they're going to be more willing to pass on the price when it's an inelastic good. So obviously the prices of food and energy are going to rise first and there's less substitutes for it. Well, core inflation, I mean, like my T-shirt gets more expensive, like that's going to come later, right? Because these prices can't adjust as quickly. I think what's important about indicators is how we use it. You know, uh, uh, 
I'll give you a fair, another good example. Uh, unemployment. I think two months ago, or was it last month, Canadian unemployment was at its lowest, but at the same time, we also had the the, the small, but at the same time, we had the, either it was the smallest amount of labor force, like actually existing in Canada or like, like a percentage wise, or was it the biggest amount of people that left the economy? So like, it was like, it was like, like two different things. Yeah, we had a, so, a shorter in unemployment rate, but that was because people had left looking for a job altogether. They were no longer productive at all. Right. So this is an example where unemployment was not a good indicator of what was happening. Um, but, you know, same thing with, with core inflation, I think it has its purpose. Yeah. In some cases, you know, if it's true that in, in right now, food and energy is inflating in, in inflation. If you take it off, you have kind of a core inflation that might give you a nicer indication of how people are doing as a whole. But then again, when energy and food is the majority of our of our costs as as middle class or, or lower class people, um, or probably even yeah, and then like the like well, so I guess maybe like the majority of our costs are a mix between food, gas, and like paying off housing, which, and that in turn is affected by rate hikes. But yeah, yeah, any type of, I mean, anything. I mean, we, we use credit so much in Canada that it's like ingrained, of course. And that's maybe something we haven't looked into enough, maybe. And I don't, I wouldn't know. I'm giving a hypothesis here. But if the, if a huge amount of my expenditure is credit-based, car loan, mortgage, line of credit, credit cards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all these things all of a sudden get more expensive just to borrow money. Shouldn't that be considered into the cost of things as well? Even if that's not necessarily calculated in inflation, I don't believe credit isn't calculated in inflation in itself. But on a, on a micro level, if I'm spending more money on interest rates, on interest because, because interest is going up, shouldn't that say something about, about recessions as well? Something else, if that's not being calculated, how am I supposed to expect recessions coming? We, we're not used to having societies that are super credit-based. We don't know how that affects people. So, you know, there's something else to think about for economists up there in their big fancy desks in their offices. Basing all of their theories off of like Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, which was written in 1850s when we, we were still having mostly agricultural and like slightly transitioning into industrial economies. And there was no such thing as a credit card or a 30-year mortgage. Okay, and then another question for you, George, being that you're also at McGill, also an econ student, but outside of expanding economic, how well have do you think your degree has kind of like helped you or equipped you to explain the things that are happening now from a really critical perspective? What or do you think there's anything missing? Um, I think one thing that's really missing in the economics, uh, let's call it curriculum at McGill, and I think generally North America, is that human aspect to it all. Um, Andrew and I have had these discussions a couple of times where I've said, uh, you know, economics isn't only about the numbers. And I think we're becoming less and... Well, you were, you were talking about, you were talking all about the numbers this episode. <laughs> they're, I think they're key indicators. I think they're key indicators, but I don't think they're the ones who we should be making decisions on. Like, we shouldn't be I don't think I should make I should be making an economic decision based off an estimate that I regressed in a model. Right? It's great to say that okay, I find that this kind of works this model in this very specific context, but don't tell me I'm going to take that now and try to uh, you know explain something very specific. Uh, like I said, I minor in international development, so it's it's a it's a clear example as to where economic ambition with math and statistics have led to many, many mistakes 
in the in the developing world. Okay, we have to agree on that. We haven't eradicated poverty yet. In that sense, I don't think you know. I I, I think there are other things that economists should also try to ponder on, which is the human aspect. Um, neoclassical economics, which have reigned the economics world for a very long time, forgets that component, I think, often. And it shows in the way it's taught to us. Because the first thing, and, and I don't know how you would fix this, but and I don't even know if it's even fixable. But if you've realized, like McGill offers, for instance, three levels of micro and macro, right? There's like the, the micro, macro for the kids, for the students that don't take uh, an econ... Yeah, so there's 208, 209, you know, the, the, for those who don't, who aren't in, in the major or the honors, there's 230 and 250, I believe, no, 230 and two, whatever, the other, the other, I think it's 220, whatever it is, the micro and the macro for major, and then there's 250 and two and 350 or three something. And the, and they're all, te they're technically all introductory courses. They're all the same, they're all the same course, theoretically speaking, but they're all taught at different levels. And the different levels just means well, one's gonna be much more similar than the other level. Yeah, but like there are no there are no prerequisites for like economic classes that you need to take before it. It's like like they're they're all possible as like the very first economic classes that you could take, even if they're very different in terms of difficulty and how quantitative they get. That that that, that yeah, that's the case, and it's true that for example, like I don't know how someone could do micro 250 with micro 250, which is the honors like micro without taking any micro whatsoever. I don't know how people would do that. Like I did micro before taking 250 and I, it solidified a lot of information, but to take it like that, that's another level, but that's besides the fact what I have my, my issue here, my, my, my bone that I'm, I'm biting on a little bit here is, is the idea that students who did, let's say their BCom and are going to take really simple economics are then expected to take that information and then explain it for the rest of the world. Like, you know, because they're going to use it in the market and analysis and all these different things or in their jobs in the banking world or whatever. And it's really, and it's lacking detail to it. Well, it's also, it's not only lacking detail, it's, it's lacking politics, it's lacking psychology, it's lacking sociology, it's lacking history. It's lacking the philosophical component of economics. I'll give you a very good example, which is the long run. The idea of, of long run in, in, uh, in the, you know, in the supply side of economics the long run for example let's take like basic thing you know in the competitive markets mc equals p you know and the thing and then in the long run the idea is that you're going to have this this you know this actually in the long run marginal cost will kind of be there will be no sorry it'll be zero economic profit right that's the thing about about long run uh about the long run I did not understand the idea that long run was was uh, a theoretical thing and in no way realistic in the real world. It's this. It's it's kind of like the horizon. I remember I think Lander explained that to, to us. Lander kind of mentioned this idea that it's like the horizon. It's something that you see, you can observe it, but you'll never attain the horizon. It's not a real thing. There are business students who will leave their bachelor's, their BCom, and their MBA as well, who are going to go to the long run. Is well, you know, marginal pro, you know, profit will, will equal zero anyways in the long run, which might be in six years. I have students ask that question, and it's a valid question. People ask, "Oh, when is the long run?" This is because people don't understand the like, this is the, the this is the, the 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 philosophical component to economics, and we're not taught that. We're just taught do the do the do the, the supply and demand, find the marginal you know the marginal cost and all these things. Do the math for it. Do a simple uh, three way rule, and you and you you know you mastered economics. Why that? What are you talking about? <laughs> people use these terms. Politicians, for example, will use these terms of deregulate because economics says that because that's the science behind it, and they're just taking bits and parts. I think McGill as an institution, maybe not going to the details of it at all, but I take the time to explain 
This is just like a brief thing, right? There's more to it. You know, humble yourselves to the idea. And maybe this includes as well. We're sitting here, three of us, like we're all BA students here and we're talking and contemplating economics as if we're PhDs above that and we've done studying. We haven't. We've, we're like at the beginning of our, of our economic career. We're like, we're like armchair, we're like armchair, armchair economists. Yeah, like, like we're sitting and it's great. I think it's important to these discussions to have an opinion, but I don't like, and, and forgive me if I've done it often in this, in interview, in this, you know, discussion or not, but I don't like to kind of give these prescriptions about how things are going to be. I have an idea as to maybe what might happen. And I, and I think maybe it should have been differently, yes or not, but I'm not there. And I shouldn't be able ever to tell you exactly what's going to happen next. But often predictions are sort of tantamount in terms of like what policies you do today, because a lot of times policies that you implement today contain implicit predictions about how things are going to pan out in the future. Yeah, it's the kind of thing is like, you know, if I believe it, it'll happen kind of thing. Yeah. If I sit there and telling you inflation, 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 and you're like, oh, inflation is happening. I told you. Yeah. I, Economists have predicted 10 out of the last nine recessions. Like it, it, theoretically, if I was some guy that basically said like there is going to be massive inflation and I, I, like, I predicted that every day sooner or later, like by the time inflation does become massive, I will ha- have been vindicated for that one specific day. And I could use that one day to parade my credentials around. Yeah, I, I think I think, yes, I think economists and that's where the philosophical component comes into play. I can tell you. I think this is going to happen. Like, bro, I, I told you, I think this is what's going to happen about the economy. This is what I thought was going to happen, you know, post-pandemic and all that stuff. And to you're right, to an extent, I had certain assumptions correct. I, I never gave, I don't, I, I never tried to give necessary, and no, never. I, I limit, I try to limit the times that I give numbers, like my estimates about stuff. Growth to me at 5%. I don't, I don't know this. I don't know how I'm going to find this information to you. I could tell you what people are saying. And telling me that that kind of sounds right in my mind, but I, I don't know, like economists fetishize about this. So maybe maybe when it comes to economics, there are basically two ends of the extreme where like one end is people closer to like Lander who like all like almost always believe in the free market with like the one exception of externalities. And in every other case, the free market always wins. And then the other end of the extreme are like people who don't think that federal stimulus spending plays any role in inflation. Like the people that were always saying that inflation is transitory or like, like completely buy into modern monetary theory or whatever. And I guess, all right, thanks again for listening to expanding economics. We'll be back next time discussing whatever economic issue we decide to discuss then warranted and when it isn't warranted and like how to balance those factors